Good morning. My name is Jesse Rice. I am part of the youth staff here at First Press Bellevue, and it is very good to be with you this morning, and I'm so thankful I didn't have to read that list of names. Uh, thanks, Rich. Uh, welcome you if you're joining online or watching this on the podcast as well. Um, the last time I was in the pulpit here, uh, my wife Katie was very, very pregnant. Uh, she was about ready to pop, and pop, she finally did. On September 14th, we welcomed this little guy into the world. I know, right? <laughs> this is Ryder James Rice. As you can see from this next slide, he's already got a lot of personality. Yes, that's him right there. I show you this picture because I want to say thank you for being a, such a supportive and encouraging church family to us. As Katie and I are starting our own family, it has been wonderful. Thank you. I wanted to share that with you. Family, in fact, is a key word this morning. Not just because family is a topic well-suited for this holiday season, but also because we're going to spend the next few Sundays leading up to Christmas looking at Jesus' family, specifically his family tree, as it's listed in these first 17 verses of Matthew's Gospel. By the way, Rich only read a third of them. There's another two-thirds of those names sitting in there. Each Sunday, we're going to zoom in on one of those characters that we find in this list and discover how their story impacts our story and reveals more about what God is really like. Now, just like your family tree and just like my family tree, Jesus' family tree has some, how do you say, bent branches in it, all right? So in honor of this reality, we are calling this Advent series Awkward Family Moments. Awkward Family Moments, right? Awkward Family Moments that are captured you know, in awkward family photos, like, like this one. <laughs> yeah, these are actual awkward family photos from awkwardfamilyphotos.com, or even this one. Even the dog looks kind of bummed out in this one. <laughs> Last but not least, my favorite. <laughs> Somebody actually paid money and spent time to get that picture. I hope they don't go to this church. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Awkward family moments captured in awkward family photos. That's essentially what Matthew is giving us here as he kicks off his story about the life of Jesus. It's a snapshot of Jesus' family tree. And the snapshot is full of outrageous names and stories that have much to tell us about what the heart of God is really like. Now, I don't know about you, but I normally skip right over these first 17 verses when I'm kind of remembering the Christmas story, right? I mean, why did Matthew start this way? Why did he begin with a genealogy? Why didn't he just get right into the action like other gospel writers? Get right to the, the baby and the shepherds and the magi and all that kind of, like, get into it. Because I don't know what it was like in your home growing up, but in my family, as we prepared to celebrate Christmas, we did not include this little piece of scripture, Right? My parents didn't gather as kids together in the living room on, on Christmas Eve night and open up the Bible, and I, I kind of imagine this happening with a King James Bible. Uh, they didn't open it up and say, okay, kids, let's read the Christmas story. Woo! And then launch in with, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat... No, of course we didn't do that for two reasons. First and foremost, my parents did not want to have to tell us what begat meant. Uh-uh. Not going there. 
And second, we didn't think of this little passage, this little list of names as being important at all to the Christmas story. We just passed right over it. Maybe you have too. But as we're about to see, this long list of names turns out to be the best part of the Christmas story. And I believe that God has a surprise for you this morning. I believe that somehow, in some way, maybe through this message or the music or the interactions with each other or on the car ride home or whether you're watching from home, somehow God wants to surprise you with his love. I really think that. God wants to surprise you with his love, so let's keep our eyes wide open this morning. Because a surprise is exactly what we get if we zoom in a little closer on this genealogy. When we do, we find that Matthew is making at least three profound statements about the very heart of God. In a list of names? Yes, in a list of names. And it's these three profound statements that we're going to look at this morning. Are you ready? All right. The first statement that Matthew is making about God's love is that it is scandalously inclusive. It is scandalously inclusive. Matthew, who was a Jew, was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He knew Jewish culture inside and out. He knew the Hebrew scriptures like the back of his hand, and he knew that the people who would be reading what he was writing would know these things as well. So Matthew wanting his Jewish audience to grasp that it is this Jesus, it's him. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. He very intentionally highlights certain names. Why does he do this? In elementary school, we did an art project where you had to make a coat of arms, one of these things, a coat of arms. All right, kind of looks like this. We're supposed to, that was my bad, You were supposed to decorate your coat of arms with things that were important to you, things that kind of showed you off, right? Maybe an award of some kind or a picture you took from a trip or something you loved to do. Whatever the elements were, they were designed to kind of reveal the person you were, to show off. Now, this is actually the Canadian coat of arms right here. Uh, What we find here are uh, maple leaves there at the bottom, then up and to the left there's a harp, and then to the right there's a unicorn, So maple leaves, harps, and unicorns, I guess this is why Canada is such a dominant player on the world stage. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Canadians. We just live so close. we got to pick on each other. Genealogies, just like a coat of arms, were meant to show off what kind of a person you were. So you wanted strong, famous names in your line. You wanted to be identified with the cream of the crop. We still do this, right? So naturally, the Jewish Messiah was tied to the finest Jewish names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. So Matthew, of course, includes these names. But then Matthew includes some wholly unexpected names, some rather feminine names, actually. And just the fact that women are included in this list is scandalous. It was traditional that a person's lineage would only be traced through their father. It didn't really matter who your mother was. After all, they were seen more as property than as equals. It only mattered who your father was. But Matthew very intentionally includes the name of five women. And not just any five women, right? Because if we zoom in, we see of these five women, women, we have Tamar, who commits incest. We have Rahab, who is a prostitute. We have Ruth, who had three strikes against her in that culture. She was a woman, she was a widow, and she was not Jewish. 
We have Bathsheba, who was an adulterer, and of course we meet Jesus' own mother, Mary, as an unwed pregnant teen. Why in the world is Matthew including these names? These were shameful names. These were not names to boast about. Why are they here? But it gets a little more interesting when you consider the stories of even these celebrated Jewish men. The guys are not off the hook here, not by a long shot. And we can see Matthew kind of winking, you know, and kind of pulling back the curtain and go, let's take another look at these guys, these ones we celebrate. Consider how Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrew people, tried to pass off his wife as his sister in order to save his own skin twice. Consider how Jacob, Abraham's grandson, schemed with his mother to deceive his father Isaac in order to steal his brother's Esau's birthright. Consider how King David, who was also known as a man after God's own heart, seduced Bathsheba, had an affair with her, and then to cover it up, had Bathsheba's husband murdered. Oh, that's kind of interesting. This is not a list of family members you would necessarily brag about over some eggnog at a holiday party, right? So, how's the fam? Oh, they're good, good. Yeah, Bobby got into Harvard. Susie made nationals on the swim team. All very exciting. How about you? Oh, good. You know, I can't complain too much. Of course, Uncle David had an affair with the woman across the street, and then to try to cover it up, he had her husband murdered. So, you know, keep them in your prayers. Uh, no. They were all guilty of something. This is not a list of family members you would brag about, but Jesus does. Why? Well, just like the people in this list, those respected names and the shameful names and the blend of the light and the dark, we all have stuff that makes us feel like, if anyone ever found out about this, I'd be ruined. If anybody knew this about me, they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't love me. Just like the people on this list, we've got some great stuff about us. We've got some not so great stuff about us. We very much want to do the right thing. We very often do the wrong thing, right? We are very much like the people in this list. And what Matthew is saying to his first century Jewish audience, as well as to you and to me in the 21st century, is that God's love is not for those who seem to have it all together. Not for those, because nobody has it all together. God's love is for all of us. It's not deterred by the things we've done wrong. It's not defeated by the hurt that we've inflicted on ourselves or on others. In fact, our pain only seems to draw God in closer. So what Matthew is saying here is that God's love is scandalously inclusive. So let me ask you this. Have you ever felt on the outside God wants to include you in his family. Has your family ever been a source of hurt in your life? We could all probably raise our hands. Jesus says, come on in, doesn't matter. I want you in my family. Do you have things in your life right now, maybe they even come to mind right now, that you are ashamed of, that you are scared that anybody would ever find out? Jesus says, I see those things. I know those things. I'm not afraid of those things. Come on in. Come on in. Now, please hear what I'm, please don't hear what I'm not saying here, okay? I'm not saying it doesn't matter what we believe, because of course it matters what we believe. It is crucial that we think rightly about God if we are to be followers of Jesus. How we think determines how we act. I'm also not saying that it doesn't matter what we do. Of course it matters what we do. 
As James points out, faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. There has to be evidence of what we believe about Jesus. Or we should probably wonder whether we believe in Jesus at all. Finally, I'm not saying that God's love is just some spiritual free-for-all, that all roads lead to enlightenment. You can worship God, you can worship a tree, doesn't matter. No, of course it matters. What we worship shapes who we become. Just Jesus said about himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We don't get to shape God into whatever image that suits us best. But what I am saying is this. If we are not somehow scandalized by the people that God continues to include in his family, the way that that first century audience would have been scandalized to hear these names listed in Jesus' genealogy, then I think we are in danger of missing the heart of God. We may be drawing the boundary lines in the wrong places. Because God's love is scandalously inclusive. Why? Because the heart of God is drawn to the broken and the weak and the outsiders, which brings us to the second profound statement that Matthew is making here in this genealogy. That was my son, by the way, back there. He's praying. That the love of God is astonishingly humble. The love of God is astonishingly humble. The Jewish audience that Matthew is addressing in his gospel was expecting a Messiah to come that would save them and restore them from all the world's brokenness and injustice. They knew what a miracle this would take. Just like we can look around at our world, we can watch the news and go, how is this ever going to get fixed? They knew it would take a miracle, and so naturally they were expecting a Superman kind of a Messiah, the kind of Messiah that would come and would topple the Roman government who would come and set up his own powerful government, who would establish a kingdom where the religious zealots would finally take their rightful place of honor and the sinners and the non-Jews would just sort of be done away with. But instead, instead, we find throughout Jesus' life and ministry that he is constantly including these sinners in his small band of disciples He is constantly welcoming these these non-Jews or these Gentiles, these outsiders. He's welcoming them into his inner circle. He's constantly identifying with the broken and the needy, not the rich and the powerful. And people who were despised by the religious leaders of his day, these were the very people that Jesus called friends. What kind of a Messiah is this? Why does he behave this way? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the Apostle Paul explains why. Why is the Messiah like this? Here's why. He says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul is asking his readers, he's asking us to imagine Jesus considering what it meant to be God. Just picture that. Jesus is thinking about this. What does it mean to be God? What does it mean to be truly divine? How is divinity best expressed. Jesus is considering these things, and as he does, he comes to a conclusion. 
He's thinking about this. He comes to a conclusion. He comes to the conclusion that true divinity is best expressed by taking on the form of a servant. Taking on the nature of a servant, of a slave, of being obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus is considering what it really means to be God, and he comes to the conclusion that to be God means to be servant. To be God is to be servant. Astonishing humility. The creator submits himself to his own creation. The one who is above all gets down on his hands and his knees and washes our feet. As Bible teacher Daryl Johnson puts it, self-emptying love is the proper expression of divine status. To be God is to be servant. And what Matthew reveals to his readers in this genealogy is that Jesus' bloodlines connect him directly to the most hurting, the most broken, the most needy people. He doesn't come just to be around them, be near them. He's one of them, and he's come to serve them. Astonishing humility. What a shock. What a scandal. What kind of Messiah is this? It's a Messiah that no one expected. Which brings us to our last point. God's love is wonderfully unexpected. When I was eight years old, what I wanted for Christmas more than anything was an electric race car set, kind of like this one. Now, you're like, dude, how old are you? So I got to explain. This was back when video games weren't all that cool, right? Okay, so I wanted an electric race car set. Now, Electric race car sets were very simple to operate. You had a little trigger thing. If you pulled the trigger, the car went around the track. If you released the trigger, the car stopped. It was basically a glorified light switch. Okay, that's all this thing was. And I wanted it super, super bad. So I started to bargain with my parents the way that children often do this time of year, promising them that I will never ask for anything else as long as I live if you just give me that. You guys have been hearing this? If I could just have this, I, pro- I will never, I will always be good. I will, you guys know what I'm talking about, don't you? Those kids right there. Yeah, they Okay. Well, Christmas morning came that year, and I did not get my electric race car set. Thanks for that sympathy. I was crushed. <laughs> if you're watching online, they were just totally silent. Uh, I was crushed, right? But my parents, they, they kind of winked at me, and they said, maybe your parents, your gra- or maybe your grandparents got it for you grandparents. Of course, they love me. They wouldn't let me down, my grandparents. So the next day, we headed down to my grandparents' place, and lo and behold, good tidings of great joy, there was a box exactly the size of the race car set that I wanted under their tree. I was crazy with anticipation, but trying to, you know, kind of play it cool, as we kids would do back then. Looks like we have a fine selection of gifts under the tree this year. Very good. But when it was finally time to open a present, I just, I was... I ripped open the paper, right? And I quickly realized that I had not received my electric car. I had received this instead. <laughs> that, my friends, is a pogo stick, if you're not familiar with it. And just so we're clear, that's a terrible toy to give to a child. <laughs> that's just like, we don't care about you. I wanted a race car set. I got a pogo stick. And then you got to do that like little cover-up. Oh, thank you so much. I really, thank you. I love it. 
Matthew is writing to people expecting a certain kind of Messiah. They're expecting the race car set, but not this kind of Messiah. They were expecting a powerful ruler of a Messiah. Instead, they get a Messiah who suffers and who dies. They were expecting an exclusively Jewish Messiah. They get a Messiah who invites everyone in, even the unrighteous, even the outsiders. And just think about the upside-down elements of the Christmas story that we remember every time this year. Jesus shows up as a baby, You can almost hear history building in excitement as this genealogy unfolds over time. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, everything crescendos. The anticipation builds until nobody can stand it any longer, and then suddenly, a little baby. That's the climax of Matthew's genealogy, a little baby. Totally unexpected. Then think about this. Who gets the news first when this baby Messiah arrives? Who do God's own angels announce this to? Is it the religious leaders, the esteemed rabbi, the power structures of the Jewish or Roman worlds? No, it's shepherds. Shepherds, these scruffy, disreputable guys who kind of lived in such chaos they had to live on the outside of town and just herd animals. That's all they could do. They find out before all the religious types, before any of the rich and powerful types. Totally unexpected. And who is the first to worship this little baby Messiah? According to Scripture, according to Matthew, it was the Magi. Those guys we refer to as the three wise wise men? Wise guys? (laughs) They are the first to worship. Now, check this out. Who are the Magi? They were not Jews. They were foreigners. What was their occupation? Uh Uh-oh, they were astrologers. The source of the wisdom they claimed had to do with their expertise in understanding the alignment of orbiting balls of dirt. Are you getting this? The first people to worship Jesus were pagan astrologers. What is going on here? Everything about Jesus' birth, about his life, his death, his resurrection is unexpected. Everything about Matthew's list of who's in the family is unexpected. So Matthew is saying... You think you know God, but you have no idea. Open your eyes wider. Open your heart wider. Lay down your tightly held ideas of how you think that the world works and receive from God the way of healing, the way of restoration, the way of hope. Receive my unexpected love. Let me close with this. There is a reason that Bible scholar Dale Bruner calls this little passage of Scripture the gospel in miniature. The gospel in miniature. Because it's in these 17 verses that highlight Jesus' Jesus' family tree that we discover a God whose love is more scandalously inclusive, more astonishingly humble, and more wonderfully unexpected than we could ever have hoped for. So... So, as we move once again into this very busy Christmas season, full of so much joy and laughter, so much frustration and angst as you try to find a parking spot at the mall, as we move into this, let us open our eyes wider. Let us open our hearts wider to receive this God that no one expected. This is the God who invites you even now 
once again to taste and see that he is good. Would you pray with me? We need you, Jesus, to come to our rescue. What else can we say? Jesus, you are not what we expected. Even now, we have certain ideas of how you should work, of when you should work. God, as best we can, we lay those things down and we invite you to work however it is you would please. We say thanks and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.